What's going on guys? I'm obviously not Dan. I am Jeremy, the director of Youth and Young Adult Ministries here at the church. We're thankful that you're able to join us in person or online today. So I'm wondering, are you new to redemption? If so, we'd like to invite you out to step one on Sunday, March 6th after the second service. What's step one? I'm so glad that you asked. It's one of the first steps in getting connected here at Redemption. Join us for this laid back and enjoyable event where you'll be introduced to some of our leadership at Redemption. We'll enjoy some fantastic food, tell you a little bit about ourselves, answer any questions you may have, and help point you on a path of quality discipleship. Registration is free, but required so that we know how many people are coming. Register today at rbclondon.ca slash next steps. Next, women, are you single? Single mom, single again? If so, we want to invite you to a morning filled with good food and encouragement planned just for you. Join us Saturday, February 19th for breakfast and time together in the Word. Cost is $10. Registration is required at rbclondon.ca slash women. Finally, we have some exciting news for Redemption families. Kids ministry for all ages, that's newborn to grade 5, will soon be available during both services. Starting February 13th, we're going to have a class for students in grades 2 to 5 during the 11.15 a.m. service. We would love to have your children join us for a time of worship and discipleship. Register them today at rbclondon.ca slash in person. Thanks, and as always, God bless. Welcome, church, as we stand uh, to worship this morning. Let's be encouraged by what the psalmist says. He says, I will sing aloud of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, oh God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. Let's sing aloud together. But did you feel the mountains tremble? Did you hear the oceans roar? When the people rose to sing of Jesus Christ, the
darkness tremble when all the saints join in one song and all the streams flow as one river to wash away our brokenness sing it again did you feel the darkness tremble when all the saints join in one song all the streams flow as one river to wash away our brokenness. Here we see that God, you're moving. A time of jubilee is coming. When young and old return to Jesus.
what a privilege we can be together in, in the presence of God. His word says that we have access to his presence through his grace. What a privilege, what a blessing that is. Let's turn our minds and our, our hearts toward that thought through what Jesus has done. Be lifted higher, be lifted higher. 
exalted. Let's be encouraged by his word. It says in 1 John, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. The message we've just been singing. That God is light and in him is no darkness at all. For we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness. We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Let's continue to worship and focus on that wonderful truth of the gospel, the saving grace. Christ, my living. 
you up, we glorify you, Jesus, as our living hope, the one in whom we trust. Bless your word. Thank you, Lord, for giving us the, the privilege of coming into your presence to honor your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. As always, it is great to be with you. And let's continue to worship by taking God's Word and turning to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. You may recall that there are five major great sermons in Matthew preached by the Lord Jesus. Sermon number one, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. Sermon number two, chapter 10. Number three, chapter 13. Number four, chapter 18. And number five, chapters 24 and 25. And Pastor Norm, two weeks ago, took you by the hand and led you into and through Matthew chapter 24, the first half of this sermon. And now it is my duty and joy and privilege 
to see you all the way through to the end of chapter 25. Pastor Norm's given me three Sundays to do so. I thank him for it because there is a lot in here. At the outset, understand it is a sermon. Just ignore the chapter and verse divisions for a moment and understand that these two chapters constitute a single sermon, beginning, flow, end, and so there is a definite real connection between what Christ has declared in chapter 24 and what he is going to declare in chapter 25. Three subjects in particular that he has already touched on in the sermon that are now going to resurface in the remainder of the sermon and he is going to address them in greater detail. The first subject is this. You need to be watchful. Look back in chapter 24, verse 42. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Christ returns to that subject in the first 13 verses of Matthew 25. The second subject, look at verse 46 of chapter 24. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Faithfulness. And Christ returns to that subject. You need to be faithful. He returns to it in chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. And then the third subject, right at the end of chapter 24, he, he alludes to it at various points, the coming judgment. And there at the end of chapter 24, 51st verse, he describes that coming judgment as follows. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He alludes to it in Matthew 25. He actually uses that phrase again at the end of verse 30 in chapter 25. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then from verse 31, right through to the end of the sermon, he gives his full attention to the coming judgment. Did you get that? So we've got three Sundays. Today, Lord willing, next Sunday, the Sunday after that, and chapter 25 just naturally divides into these three sections. You need to be watchful, first 13 verses. You need to be faithful, verses 14 through 30. Judgment is coming, verse 31 through 46. So you see what our business is about today? We're going to tackle the first section, this, this theme of watchfulness. And so follow along now as I read for as this portion of Christ's sermon, the first 13 verses of Matthew 25. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. And the door was shut. 
Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. To watch. To be alert. Right? To be ready. To pay attention. At the end of 2008, we moved down to the state of Texas and received a warm welcome. And several of the believers, the locals down there, uh, they warned us, you need to watch. You need to watch for the three S's. Snakes, the diamondback, spiders, the brown recluse, and scorpions need to tell me twice. I still get the eebie-jeebies just thinking about it. We were there 10 years. I never stopped watching. Any movement on the ground, that's the extent of my karate, I responded. I was watching, always alert, to be alert, to be ready, to pay attention. The sailor watches for rocks and reefs. The pilot watches for storms. The guard watches for intruders. We tell children to watch when crossing the street, when carrying scissors, when running over uneven ground. We tell the athlete to watch the play, the babysitter to watch the children, the driver to watch the road. Perhaps you've been told to watch what you eat. Watch what you spend. Watch your mouth, watch your speed, watch your manners, to be alert, to be ready, to pay attention. The Bible exhorts us constantly and consistently to watch. Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with all thanksgiving. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Watch, watch, watch. Be alert. Be ready. And pay attention. The Pilgrim's Progress it was a book penned over 400 years ago by a man named John Bunyan. And in the Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan says it's what we call a spiritual allegory, right? And in the Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan describes the journey of a man named Pilgrim, or Christian, as he travels from the city of destruction, when he was an unbeliever, to the celestial city, his promised home. And Bunyan depicts all of the adventures and struggles and obstacles and trials and joys and tribulations that Pilgrim encounters on this journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city. At one point on the journey, Pilgrim is accompanied by a man named Hopeful. And they arrive at a place called the Delectable Mountains. Very suggestive, isn't it? The Delectable Mountains. And they wander and walk through these beautiful vineyards and orchards and gardens and groves. 
and they eventually encounter four shepherds with their flocks. And these four shepherds have names, knowledge, experience, sincere, and watchful. The shepherds show Christian and hopeful three hills, three mountains. The first mountain is called error. And as they're looking out, gazing over this mountain, this hill, what they notice, what catches their attention, you can't miss it, are all of these broken bodies at the bottom of the hill. And they ask the shepherds, who are these? Well, these were individuals who were on this journey, and they have fallen from truth into error because they failed to watch. Then they take them to a second hill. It's called Caution. And as they look at this hill, they see these blind men stumbling among the tombs, lost, no idea where they are. And again, they ask the shepherds, particularly watchful, who are these? What does this represent? And he informs them, these are those who have wandered from the way. These are those by whose conduct and behavior they have denied the Lord Jesus Christ. They take them to a third hill. This hill is called Clear. And on this hill, there is what John Bunyan calls a perspective glass. We might use the word telescope. And Christian and Hopeful take turns looking through the perspective glass, and it is fixed upon the gate of the celestial city. What is Bunyan's point? It is simply this. We must pay attention to what we believe, that is Mount Error. We must pay attention to where we walk, that is Mount Caution. And we must pay attention to what is coming, that is Mount Clear. And that is the message of the Lord Jesus in our text. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour Four times in the New Testament we are told that Christ will come like a thief in the night. He will come suddenly, and He will come unexpectedly, but He will most certainly come. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Fix your gaze upon this certainty. Fix your spiritual sight upon what you know will happen. And watch for it. Live your life accordingly. And the Lord Jesus here, he communicates this simple message by way of a parable. Well, what is a parable? Go back with me all the way to the first verse of chapter 25. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like. Whenever you see that word in English, like or as, you know the author or the speaker is making what? A comparison. And when we make a comparison using the word like or as, we call that a simile. Correct? All you English majors, it's a simile. What's a parable? A parable is simply a long simile. That's all it is. A parable is an extended simile in which the illustration is drawn out. And the Lord Jesus loves to use these parables. He loves to use these parables in order to communicate a very simple truth, to be very direct in what he is saying, but employ an illustration in order to engage the heart, 
He simply could have said, watch therefore for you know neither the day nor the hour, and just completely skip the parable. But why the parable? Why the comparison? Why this extended simile, this illustration? Because he wants to engage their hearts, bring them into an experience with which they're all familiar and acquainted. Draw this illustration from everyday life to make this one essential point. Therefore, in other words, based on what I've said in this parable, watch, be alert, be ready, pay attention. For you know neither the day nor the hour. Now that means we need to be careful and cautious when we interpret parables. A parable must be interpreted as what? You guessed it, a parable. This isn't Paul's epistle to the Romans, a series of propositional statements. This isn't poetry. This isn't narrative. This is a figure of speech. And a figure of speech must be interpreted as a figure of speech. That means we look for the essential point that Christ is making, and we do not get bogged down in the details. To get bogged down in the details is to miss the point. Well, there are ten virgins. Well, why are there ten virgins? What's the significance of that? Why aren't there twelve? Why are they virgins? Why are there five wise, five foolish, evenly divided? What's the symbolic significance of the number five? What's the oil all about? What's the lamp? Why is the bridegroom delayed? Why do they all become drowsy? Where's the bride? I want to know where the bride is. What does that mean that there's no bride in this parable? What is the theological significance of that? Who are these dealers? What's going on? All of the significance of all of these details. To get bogged down in the details is to get lost in the details. To get lost in the details is what? It is to miss the point. It's an illustration. The Lord Jesus is drawing in his audience. He is drawing in his disciples, and he is employing an illustration from everyday life with which they are very familiar. Fellas, there's a wedding. He's got their attention. Who doesn't like a wedding? Everybody loves a wedding. And you can just imagine the disciples' response, weddings, I love weddings. Ooh, remember that wedding at Canaan? When uh, the Lord Jesus turned the water into wine, that was a good one. He's, they've got, he's got their attention, a wedding. And at this wedding, there are ten virgins, ten bridesmaids. Oh, yes, bridesmaids. I remember I went to my cousin's wedding just a couple of months ago. They only had six bridesmaids. It was a few of my nieces, my brothers, and a few others. Yes, always a bridesmaid, never a bride. Yes, the bridesmaids. And I understand what the bridesmaids do. They take the oil and their lamps, and they're basically there for when the bridegroom arrives. They kind of lead the processional in the evening. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's beautiful. It's very moving. Oh, five are ready. Five aren't. Five of them didn't take any oil with us. And you, them, and you can imagine the shock on the part of disciples and the listeners. Silly girls. They had one job, one responsibility. They knew the bridegroom was coming. Bridegroom always gets delayed for whatever reason. They had one job, one responsibility. Get your lamp, get your oil, and wait. And when he comes, you lead the processional. Oh, they weren't ready. They weren't prepared. They weren't alert. They weren't watching. Do you see how he's drawn them in? And then he delivers his punchline. Bam, right there. Verse 13. Therefore, watch. You watch. For you know neither the day nor the hour. Jesus is coming again.
The end is drawing near. It is absolutely, with most certainty, going to happen. You have no excuse for not being ready. You have no excuse to not be alert. You have no excuse to not be watchful. Now, the question the parable leaves me asking, and I've been asking, I've asked it at different junctures over the years, and as I've studied it and turned to again over the past few weeks, the question is simply this, well, what does it mean to be watchful? What does that mean? You know, it's fascinating because you know when you read the parable, all ten bridesmaids fall asleep. So it probably doesn't mean what we think it means. Right there, should tell you, and be careful with parables and how you interpret them. All ten fall asleep. It's not about sleeping or not sleeping. It's about being ready versus not ready. Alert versus not alert. Thinking ahead versus not thinking ahead. Living in the reality of what you know is coming as opposed to being out of touch with reality. I've struggled with this over the years, not so much of late. I struggled with this as a younger man. I, I, I struggled with a lot of confusion concerning what it means to, to watch. There was a season in my teens and early 20s when I was convinced that what it means to watch is to take the Bible in one hand and take a, the newspaper in the other hand and almost divine through a crystal ball how current events were being fulfilled, prophetic portions of Scripture were being fulfilled in current events, being able to identify everything that was happening, is happening, as found in the Scripture, pointing to the immediate return of the Lord Jesus, and that's what it means to watch. So I grew up in the shadow of Hal Lindsey's, the late great planet Earth. Anybody else? Yeah, a few of the late great planet Earth. And Hal Lindsey, bless him, he, 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 didn't, he did not never claim, I know for certain when the Lord Jesus is coming back, but with the Bible in the one hand and the newspaper headlines in the other hand, he ascertained that current events and the fulfillment of the current events that were transpiring clearly indicated that Jesus is about to come back. And he posited, well, look, the nation of Israel was established in 1948, and current events tell us everything is lining up according to the book of Ezekiel, Daniel, Revelation, all that apocalyptic literature, uh, clearly indicating that Christ is going to come back within a generation of the establishment of Israel in 1948. A generation in Scripture is 40 years. Therefore, the year was 1988. And boy, I had rapture fever. Did I ever. Apocalyptic fever. 1988. And in those days, Larry Norman was crooning. I wish we'd all been ready. Come on, over 40 crowd. The under 40 crowd. Under 40 crowd, you were so uncool, you have no idea who Larry Norman is. <laughs> so uncool. You teenagers, you, your estimation of your dad just went up because he knows who Larry Norman is. You Google him later and you listen to some of those lyrics. What a voice. But he was singing, I wish we'd all been ready. And the fever, oh, the absolute fever that engulfed those churches in which I fellowshiped in those days and the prophetic meetings and all of this that it spawned, all of these ideas as to who the Antichrist is and what Russia is and what China is and what this is and what that is and seeing it in Ezekiel and in Daniel and in Revelation. And guess what, folks? It was all wrong. It was all wrong. And guess what, folks? Every generation since the ascension of Christ has done exactly the same thing. And every generation 
since the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ has been, say it with me, wrong. Wrong. To watch does not mean we handle Scripture like a crystal ball. To watch does not think that there's some secret puzzle to unlock in Scripture based on current events as transpiring around us. Oh, I was confused, and it was accompanied. It was coupled by something else. Because of that kind of mindset, I had imbibed this idea, well, then, to be spiritual and to watch, it is to adopt some kind of disembodied spirituality. Disembodied. Why, why would I want to become a math teacher? Jesus is coming back tonight. Maybe I shouldn't get married. Maybe I shouldn't uh, get involved in this or contribute to that or work towards this. And I developed this very unhealthy, disembodied spirituality whereby I thought to be super spiritual. And a real Christian was to divorce myself from the 24-7 of everyday life. Completely misinterpreted 1 Corinthians 7. There the Apostle Paul, he does tell those who are married, hey, time to act like you're not married. Those who rejoice, like there's no reason to rejoice. Those who weep, like there's no reason to weep. Those who buy, like there's nothing to buy. He says there in 1 Corinthians 7 that those who deal with the world should now deal with it as though they had no dealings with it. Well, there you are. It's a disembodied spirituality. No, it is not. It's a figure of speech. It is hyperbole. The Apostle Paul is not saying for one moment, don't get married, don't have children, don't get a job, don't contribute to the betterment of this society, don't raise children, don't do this, don't do that, don't weep, don't mourn, don't buy. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul is saying this, do all those things, but by God's mercy, do not act like they are ultimate. That's what he's saying. They are not ultimate. There is a greater reality. There is a higher reality, and it is rooted in this indisputable fact. Jesus is coming again. So I don't know, maybe just one here had to hear that. I wish someone had told me that 25, 30 years ago. It could have spared me a little bit of grief. So maybe one or two needed to hear that. What watching is not. Again, it is not interpreting Scripture through the latest newspaper headline. And it is not adopting some kind of disembodied spirituality, super spirituality. So what does it mean to watch? Lord Jesus doesn't exactly tell us. He doesn't spell it out. But what I find fascinating is this. He's addressing whom primarily? I don't doubt there are others there. But he's speaking primarily to whom? His disciples. Peter is one of his disciples. So if I want to know what the Lord Jesus meant, it might be a good idea to listen to the disciples and ask myself, how did they interpret this? How did they latch on to this? And it's fascinating because Peter, in his first epistle, he uses this expression, sober-mindedness, three times. The Apostle Paul uses it as well. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, 6, So then let us not sleep as, uh, as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. To watch, yes, to be awake. To watch, yes, to be sober. Where are they going with these terms? I think simply this. You see, when you're sleeping, you're not aware of reality, are you? You've basically entered a completely different reality. That's the opposite of being awake. Sober is the opposite of what? Being drunk. And when an individual is drunk, they are not 
in demand or control of themselves, are they? I remember the first time I was absolutely terrified. I was maybe seven or eight years of age and driving in downtown Glasgow in Scotland with my father. And we were stopped, I don't know, waiting our turn on a roundabout or something. And this woman, poor thing, I mean, uh, sadness as I think back on it, absolute terror in the moment. Now, she came out of a side building and uh, banging into light posts, banging into the car. She was half on the hood of our car, completely drunk. A complete loss of self-control. No control over her faculties, no control over her senses. Out of touch with reality. To be sober is to be in touch with reality. Not the reality we've created. Not the reality as we define it. But the reality as God himself defines it. And Peter runs with this. And he employs that word sober-mindedness three times in his first epistle. And I think here we find succinctly stated the answer to that question back in Matthew 25, arising from Christ's command, watch for you know neither the day nor the hour. Well, what does this look like? What will this look like to watch, to be in touch with reality? Well, firstly, it means this. We will recognize that the devil is menacing. First Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Do you like to watch the nature shows? I like to watch the nature shows. Anything with big cats, leopards, cheetahs, lions. And when the carnage begins, I can't look away. The night falls on the Serengeti. And that pride of lions awaken from their daytime slumber. And out they go on the hunt. And they're hot on the trail of the herd of springbok or impala or wildebeest or zebra. And who are they looking for? The vulnerable. The devil hunts among the vulnerable. Oh, we need to watch. The brokenhearted. It might be you, are vulnerable. Grief is a heavy burden to bear. When the soul begins to feel like that ground that hasn't tasted rainfall for months or years and it's parched, the rivers and streams have dried up and all the earth is brown and cracked. Oh, when the soul begins to feel like that, grief upon grief upon grief, Oh, that is a vulnerable position to be in. The hardened are vulnerable, desensitized to sin, playing, toying with, fondling sin to the point where the heart has become cauterized and indulgence, the conscience is no longer awakened. Oh, the devil is a roaring lion seeking those whom he may devour, the vulnerable, the hardened. The embittered are vulnerable. Life hasn't gone as you planned. No one's life has. Dashed dreams, scattered heap on the floor. A marriage that is not what you signed up for. 
kids, oh, God help them. And it's just disappointment after disappointment after disappointment, dashed dream after dashed dream after dashed dream. You, my friend, are vulnerable. The vulnerable are the disgruntled. Lots of them today in our circles. Because we do see this narrative, this country is not what it once was. That's the narrative, right? And we're on a downward spiral. I, I, would, I see that in many ways. And I don't know what the future holds. I think we could be in for a rough ride as believers. That true, that's true. I will not deny it. But some take that to an extreme and all they see is the negativity. And all they imbibe are the latest headlines and the social media. It just feeds them, feeds them, feeds them, feeds them. And it all spawns this attitude of settled disgruntlement. Listening to them is like drinking vinegar. Is that you, friend? You are vulnerable. The devil is a roaring lion seeking those whom he may devour. Oh, the troubled are vulnerable. You're anxious. You, you, you could start making a list of all the things you're anxious about, and it was just unending. You just, this, 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 this. When you live in the world, the perpetual, just this merry-go-round that never stops. What if, what if, what if, what if, what if? That's you. It's your life. Circumstances, you're always overwhelmed by your circumstances. Oh, my friend, you are vulnerable. Watch, says Peter, be sober-minded in touch with reality. And this reality, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And I'll say it again, unless you missed it the first ten times I said it. He hunts among the vulnerable. Oh, the need to be sober-minded and the need to be watchful. Peter adds to that a second reality that must grip us if we're going to watch and watch for the coming of the Lord Jesus. It is this. The end is approaching. Praise God. The end is approaching. 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled in control of yourself. We worship self-indulgence in our age. Self-control is what the Bible champions. To be in control of self, our thoughts and our emotions and our perspectives and our dreams. Oh, exercise self-control and be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Why this unmistakable reality? The end is coming. Meaning what? Things will not always continue, my friend, as they now are. Things will not always be as they now exist. The end is drawing near. The end of all things is at hand. And I know you're thinking to yourself, well, it's been 2,000 years since the Lord Jesus ascended. But Peter tells us right there in his second epistle, what does he tell us? A thousand years, but a day, but a moment in God's sight. And a moment, but a thousand years, right? So since Christ's ascension, how much time has passed as far as God is concerned? A couple days. He does not measure time as we measure time. 
And as far as God is concerned, ever since Christ's crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, installation at His right hand in glory on high, we have been in the last days. And we have been in the end times. The only thing we are waiting for is Christ to come back to consummate His kingdom, which He inaugurated at His first coming. The end is drawing near, and we need to be awake. We need to be sober, to be sober, to be in touch with reality. There's the reality. The end is coming. Act like it. That's what Peter is saying. I may have shared this illustration here before. Forgive me if I have. But it's a good one. Serves the purpose. Florence Chadwick, I think was her name. An American, a swimmer. First woman to swim from Catalina Island to the coast of California on her second attempt. The first attempt did not go well at all. Why? Because when she entered the water, it was a cloudy, misty, gray, rainy, foggy day. She couldn't see her hand in front of her face, had absolutely no idea where she was going. Neither did the people in the boats who were accompanying her. 9, 10, 11, 12 hours in, absolutely exhausted, pleaded with them to pull her out of the water. They encouraged her to persevere. She went at it a few hours, and I think it was after 15, 16 hours, she eventually just said, I give up. That was it. And they had to pull her aboard. To her horror, the shore was only 200 meters away. She couldn't see it. News conference, press conference the next day, I'm not going to make excuses for myself. I know I could have made it if I could have seen the shore. She proved it a few months later. Bright, clear, sunny, beautiful day. Foot into the water on Catalina Island and swam the distance to the shore of California. Do you get the point, my friend? Do you see the end? Are you with Pilgrim and Hopeful on Mount Clear peering through the perspective glass. Very significant, that expression. A telescope that will give perspective because the telescope is fixed on the gate of the celestial city. And what is being communicated to Christian and hopeful by watchful, the shepherd, is very straightforward. If you want to make it there, keep your eyes fixed on what is coming. Make it a present reality. Be sober-minded because, friend, you've still got a long way to go. And, friend, you think you've seen troubles? I'm not going to tell you the troubles are coming because they're going to make those other troubles look like they were nothing. There are fights. There are struggles. There are griefs. There are sorrows on the horizon. And it will be like that foggy, gray, cloudy, rainy day setting in, hiding all from view. Oh, the end is coming. To make that a present reality is to be sober-minded. And to be sober-minded is to be watchful. Closely associated with that point, we arrive at the third. What should be a reality? Simply this. The Lord is coming. 1 Peter 1.13 Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Set your hope fully 
on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. Notice a couple of things in that verse. Very important. Peter exhorts us, be sober-minded. How? What does it mean to be sober-minded? Set your hope. It's all about perspective. Set your hope. Fix your hope. Because wherever your hope is, it will determine your present. Whatever you're hoping in will determine your approach in the present, this present reality. And so you must make that future certainty, that expected blessedness. Fix your gaze on that hope. That will make you sober-minded. As you're sober-minded, you'll be watchful. And as you are watchful, that will enable you to walk and journey in the present. You remember learning to ride a bike, don't you? I'm sure we all do. Some younger ones here, perhaps that's still... A day yet future for you. But you remember learning to ride a bike. You remember teaching your kids to ride a bike. And one of the first things you have to learn when you're riding a bike is what? Look where you're going. Just look where you're going. Don't pay attention to mommy with the video camera beside you. Don't pay attention to what's going on over there. And whatever you do, please don't look behind. All it takes is two seconds, three seconds to remove your gaze from where you're going and where are you. You're flat on your back on the ground. That's the Christian life, friends. Fix your gaze on where you are going. Fix your sight on what is going to happen. The end is drawing near. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming again. It is to fix our faith and our hope on his coming. Notice secondly what Paul, Peter says in that verse. Set your hope fully on what? The grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. Well, hold on a second. I thought I'd already received God's grace. Only in part, Christian. Only in part, Paul tells Titus, yes, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation and instructing us, teaching us how to live godly and righteously and sensibly, sober-mindedly, watchfully in this present age. Yes, the grace of God has appeared. It's the first coming of the Lord Jesus. And the Father, yes, sent the Son. And He sent the Son, Paul tells the Galatians, born of a woman. It's the incarnation. He became a man, body and soul like us, born under the law. Why is that significant? Because we're under the law. And we have two obligations to fulfill. Do you know what they are? The law says you must obey me perfectly. Guess what, friend? You have not obeyed God's law perfectly. Far from it. Therefore, the second obligation is what? You must pay the penalty for having broken God's law. It's called eternal death. Father sent the Son, born of a woman, under the law. He's fulfilled both obligations. He has obeyed the law perfectly. He has fulfilled all righteousness. He has loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he has borne the penalty, the just condemnation due to you and due to me for having flagrantly violated the law of God. Oh, the Father has sent the Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem, to rescue, to deliver, those who are under the law. Well, that's the grace of God. That is the revelation of God's grace. His Christ's first coming into the world. And we receive Him through faith. And when we receive Him through faith, we become one with Him. And because we're one with Him, His fulfillment of the law becomes ours. His righteous obedience, ours. And the penalty He paid for our flagrant violation of the law God now considers us as having paid it because it is as if we were crucified 
and resurrected in our own persons when Christ was crucified and resurrected because in God's estimation, we are one with him through faith. But it's actually not where Peter's going in this text. He says, set your hope fully on the grace of God that will be brought to you. There's more coming. Do you understand this, believer? You are saved, yet you're not yet saved. Do you understand that? You are redeemed, but you're not yet redeemed. You are adopted, but you're not yet adopted. Yes, all of those things are true of us as Christians. We are saved, we are redeemed, we are adopted. It's true, all based on Christ coming into this world. But we have not yet entered into the fullness of those privileges. We have not yet in entered into the fullness of that blessing. As we the psalmist celebrates, when I awake, I will be satisfied with your likeness. There is so much more coming. The consummation of our salvation at the return of the Lord Jesus. And Peter's exhortation to us is this. Look, you need to be sober-minded. You need to make this truth a present reality. Set your hope fully on the grace of God that will be brought to you with the revelation of Christ. Says David King, at that moment, I will experience the end of death into endless life. That's beautiful. I will experience the end of sin into endless holiness. I will experience the end of sorrow into endless joy. Make it a present reality. Orient your life according to that reality. That is what it means to be sober-minded. That is what it means to be watchful. It is to make what is coming a reality now, whereby we are filled with hope. Have you seen the snowbanks in the parking lot out back? Did you see those when you parked out there this morning, or maybe you were at the Walmart or somewhere this week, and those huge piles of snow? And here we are in the throes of winter. And what has it been now? Six, seven, eight weeks before, since the temperatures climbed above zero? And it feels like spring is never coming. Never coming. Pile, those piles of snow never going to disappear. But you know as well as I do, it might be March. I'm praying it's March. It more likely might be May. I settle for April. But the sky, sun is going to climb high in the sky with renewed vigor and strength. Even those mountains of snow that look like they're permanent structures now, they will all melt before the sun. And the seeds that are now lying dormant beneath the surface of the earth, they will bloom and they will blossom and they will usher in these colors of spring. It is an absolute certainty. How do we survive the February blues? How do we make it through this cold spell? How do I make it through? I make it through because I know it's coming. I know it's only a couple months away. I know spring is just around the corner. And I make it a present reality to see through my current reality. Well, so too it is with the coming of the Lord Jesus. He is coming again. He will come like a thief in the night. He will come suddenly and unexpectedly, but he will come most definitely. 
And his exhortation to us is be on guard. Keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Our Heavenly Father, we do pray that your operative grace might be in us this day. You would grant illumination and understanding of your word, that you would incline our hearts to it. And we pray, our Father, that uh, you would fill us with all joy and peace in believing as we have contemplated the gospel, that you would fill us with all joy and peace in believing that we might indeed abound by ho in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. We ask it for the good of your people. We seek it from you for your eternal glory. And in the name of the Lord Jesus, we do pray. Amen. Let's all stand.